As it relates to my brother, there's one thing I know for sure, he kept us safe. Really, Jeb? Really, Jeb? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest, China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On iTunes, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik. Five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we like to call the Bradcast. Uh, The real cost of our long war on drugs, of our long war on crime, tough on crime laws, Um, We don't talk much about that cost, even as we are now looking, and I'm happy to see this, uh, a bipartisan effort in Congress, uh, a big effort, uh, particularly on the Democratic side in the presidential race, to reform our criminal justice laws. But the real cost of that, the real personal price that so many have paid so that so few can get elected uh, when it comes to uh, what we've done over the past really three decades or more in our criminal justice system. We don't talk about that price and, uh, and frankly, the cost that we pay as a society for what we are doing, for having 5% of the world's population but 25% of the world's prisoners. Well, we're going to speak with uh, someone about that price, uh, someone who paid a very dear and very personal price, uh, Anthony Papa, who spent 12 years in prison for a first-time nonviolent drug offense, he was sentenced to 15 years to life in New York State under uh, one of the first uh, tough on uh, tough on crime, tough on drugs uh, laws in this country that then went from the state to the to the federal level. Uh, we're going to talk with him about the personal price that he paid and then what happens when folks like that get released. What happens then? Are they prepared for it? And this is not just an academic question because in the next uh, what uh, two weeks here or so, we're about to release some 6,000 federal prisoners after um, sentencing restructuring. Uh, at the federal level and by the Bureau of Prisons, some 6,000 uh, federal prisoners will soon be released, and we could see as many as 46,000 prisoners released uh, w- within the coming months thereafter. So how can all of these people, how can, frankly, any of these people 
possibly learn to adjust to society in a society where they can't be hired, where in many places they are not even welcome to vote, which really ticks me off. They're not even welcome to vote after serving their time. I think they ought to be able to vote while they're serving their time, particularly when you hear uh, Anthony Papa's story and what he went through. Seems like he would have had more of a right than anyone to vote on our elected officials, even while he was in prison. Anyway, we're going to talk to him about that in a little bit. We've got uh, quite a few things going on uh, this afternoon as we go to air. Uh, <laughs> Jeb Bush and Donald Trump are mixing it up again, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit just to, you know, lighten things up before we go to uh, the war on drugs at Anthony Papa. Uh, and and maybe this. I don't know. Will this will this uh, cheer things up? Uh, this will be of interest to you, Desi Doyen. Good, uh, good day. Hello. Desi. Good day to you, too. Good day. Our uh, producer, Desi Doyen, my co-host on the Green News Report, who takes a particular interest in uh, issues of environmental importance. And, you know, Des, we have been taught we finally got some cool weather out here in, in Los Angeles for the, for the moment. And I know that people hear us uh, on this show and on the Green News Report whining and whining and whining about how hot it is. <laughs> but it really is hot in Los Angeles. And I don't bring it up just to whine. I mean, we've been living here about 20 years now. Yes. And I'm telling you. The climate, the weather, let's just be call it the weather for the moment. The weather has changed where we live. Oh, here measurably in Los so. Yeah. Measurably. And, 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 and you know what people don't realize, I think, is that much of California mm-hmm. and most of the states that have, you know, milder temperatures, much of California does not have air conditioning. <laughs> well, yes. So when we talk about, yeah. you know, rising temperatures in areas mm-hmm. where, you know, they don't have air conditioning, you know, there are buildings in New York City, for example, there are buildings all across Europe for example, that don't have air conditioning. So when heat waves hit suddenly and intensively, that they're, you know the impacts are actually stronger than you'd expect. They are. And, uh, you know, they have been, it has been so warm for so long out here. And then we got the, the numbers not long ago that, yes, in fact, over the past year, it has been the hottest ever out here in, uh, in California and, uh, frankly, around the globe. We are in the middle of a a drought, a historic drought, as many people know. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Out here in California, worst drought in recorded history. Yes. They, they have, you know, they call it a thousand-year drought, but that doesn't mean, oh, we had one just like this a thousand years ago. That means there's basically one in a thousand uh, chance. chance that any particular year you'll have a drought like this. Uh, we've been having it now for about four years. Now, it may soon be coming to an end because there is an El Nino because we are relying on one natural disaster to save us from another at this point. Uh, And we may have uh, huge rains coming up this winter. We'll see in one regard, I hope. In another regard, I'm really worried about what could happen. We talked just a few, I think it was just a month or two ago. Well, okay, there are three at least three main interstates in the state of California, the five, the 10 and the 15, the 15. And there's a few more, you know, the, the 101. But we generally keep that. Well, for, these are interstates. We generally keep that yeah. for low speed uh, chases with the uh, uh, what's his name? The, the football player who killed his uh, wife. Really? Oh, Jay Simpson. Oh, Jay Simpson. Thank you. 
man, that's where our brains are. That's how long ago that was. So we keep that uh, 101. That's just open for him whenever he wants to have a slow speed chase on the 101. But other than that, the 5, the 10, and the 15. So the 15 north and south runs. It's the main artery, really the only artery between Las Vegas uh, and Los Angeles. A few weeks ago, fire because we're in the middle of this drought, this heat spell, fire overtook the freeway and sent hundreds of motorists scrambling in all directions trying to escape it. There is no place to go out there in the middle of the desert uh, through the mountains where this uh, the highway comes in. Uh, and that was, it was a weekend we were thinking about going up to Las Vegas. On that same weekend, we were thinking about going out to Phoenix, Arizona. Well, oddly enough, on that very same weekend, on the 10. The main artery, again, pretty much the only artery between that goes east and west between Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles and Phoenix. That same weekend, a freak storm, a huge uh, storm out of nowhere and flash flooding washed away a bridge on uh, the 10, sending folks uh, about six hours out of their way to try to get around it because, there, again, there is no other way to go. A few weeks later, we went to Phoenix. They were still working on that. We got stuck for about two hours on that highway as it was shut down, as they were trying to rebuild it. These are the real costs, the real costs of climate change, the real costs of global warming that happen, you know, every day. And, you know, people don't know they don't connect the dots, but that's what's going on. So the 15 was shut down. That's a huge problem in California. The 10 was shut down. That's a huge problem in California. And now, last night on The Five, this happened. So we have some breaking news out of Los Angeles tonight. Um, this is what the I-5 freeway in the mountains north of Los Angeles looks like at this hour. This is the main artery, the main freeway connecting L.A. to the Central Valley. And those cars that you see stuck there are stuck in mud on the freeway. Uh, the I-5 is shut down. It may be shut down for as much as 24 hours. This is all the result of some dramatic flash flooding and then some very large mudslides. The fire department has dispatched helicopters to search for trapped drivers all over North LA. Uh, the LA area has been hit with severe thunderstorms that were dropping four to five inches of rain an hour, and also in some places, golf ball sized hail. So just sudden, crazy apocalyptic weather in Southern California tonight. Uh, fortunately, we've got no reports so far of injuries, but we will keep an eye on this and keep you updated. So that happened uh, really just as we were getting off air yesterday, and I got a, a, an alert from the National Weather Service that uh, rain was coming down at the rate. Uh, Rachel Maddow there said four to five inches per hour. I got the alert four to six inches per hour. Per which, hour. Which is a deluge. That is a, a deluge. deluge. That is not Indeed. a normal rainfall. That was up in the Antelope Valley again on the five, and uh, you, you, you can't see it on the radio, but these cars, dozens of cars, were buried in mud on the major artery, the northwest, north and south uh, artery between San Francisco and Los Angeles, essentially. Um, and, 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 and cars, and I think that wasn't the only place where uh, cars were just buried in mud, buried in mud, shutting down the freeway, incredibly costly, uh, to the state, to the cost of transit trucks and, and, and so forth that can't, you know, get through, can't make their deliveries. So that's the main highways, the five, the 10, the 15 have all been shut down within the past month in weather related, climate related disasters. These are real costs right now of global warming. And, by the way, our old friends at ExxonMobil, they knew. They knew about these costs. They knew that these costs were coming. 
They knew as early as 1977 about the potential catastrophe that lay ahead. And what you know, what we're talking about, these three, these aren't yet catastrophes. Um, but we're seeing more and more of this. Exxon knew about it in the 70s. And instead of doing something about it, they sort of did two things. One, they started funding uh, denialist organizations, deniers, and they obscured their own science by paying money to have people go out and say, there is no, uh, the science is unclear on this, or it's a hoax altogether. That was one thing they did. The other thing they did is they made plans. They said, oh, good. We now can plan for global warming. How? Well, the Arctic will be melting. And we can get up there and drill for more oil and make more money so that we can burn more petroleum and uh, make global warming even worse. Well, maybe there'll be some accountability on that. I hope to be talking in the next uh, day. I think on our next program, we'll be speaking with a congressman who is about to take action or who is trying to take action to bring some accountability to Exxon for what they knew, the way the tobacco companies knew for so long that their product was killing people. There may be some action going on on this. Uh, we, we spoke a few uh, a week or so ago with Anila Banerjee from Inside Climate News about their blockbuster report going through the Exxon company documents from the 70s and the 80s and seeing what they knew all along and how they were warning themselves inside the company. Uh, and now, finally, that's getting out. Finally, that story is now getting out, is being re-reported in mainstream outlets and uh, happily now perhaps being picked up in, in Congress itself. Speaking of global warming, uh, this came up the other night in the Democratic debate. Bernie Sanders raised the topic when, well, it came up uh, quite a few times, but when uh, the candidates were asked what they thought, believe was the greatest national security threat faced by this uh, country. Bernie Sanders said it was climate change. Well, Jeb Bush, <laughs> Jeb the smart one Bush, he scoffed at the idea that global warming was a national security issue. He said it doesn't even rank in the top 10. But of course, uh, Jeb is a disaster. And maybe it's uh, comments like that that underscore why he is such a disaster. We have more evidence that Jeb is a disaster uh, now that the uh, uh, fundraising numbers are out over the past uh, what are we, the third quarter of 2015. And as Politico reports that in New Hampshire, seen by many as a must win for Jeb Bush, Bush and the Right to Rise super PAC backing him have spent at least $4.8 million on TV and radio ads to support him uh, in this uh, past, well, in early September. One ad tracking firm produced an analysis for Politico that showed pro-Bush spots were running in the past three weeks, uh, occupying some 60% of the political ad airtime in the state, and yet, with $4.8 million spent, 60% of the airtime filled up, Jeb Bush's numbers have moved only... 0.3% since the ad blitz began. Oh, and by the way, that 0.3%, they moved down. They moved down from 9% to 8.7% uh, popularity in New Hampshire with all of that money running. That's according to uh, Real Clear Politics, their average of polls in the GOP primary. So he's actually gone down 
with all of that money spent, he is a disaster. Uh, and he was supposed to be the front runner. And that's why. So now you got uh, Donald Trump. Now you got Donald Trump who, who steps in. And now apparently he continues to be the front runner. It's kind of amazing. Uh, and just to uh, rub things in, Donald Trump took another shot today at Jeb Bush, actually at George W. Bush. But, you know, Jeb by proxy uh, on the uh, who is this? this is on Bloomberg. And this woman who interviews him is Stephanie Rule. Now, I'm not in the habit of uh, defending uh, Donald Trump for anything. But in this case, I, I, I kind of got to. Here was a, an interview between um, Donald Trump and Stephanie Rule just uh, within the past hour or two today. In order to be the president of the United States, you have to be a leader in so many ways. We haven't seen your soft hand. We've seen your offense. But George Bush had to stand in front of America after 9-11. Barack Obama did after Sandy Hook. Help us understand who Donald Trump is as a man I need to know that you will make us feel safe and you will make us feel proud. Okay. Okay. Stephanie, do you really need to know that he will make us feel safe and he will make us feel proud? Really? I, I mean, she sounds like she's asking him for a date or something uh, more than anything. This is the question uh, from, from Bloomberg. She needs to know that she will feel safe, that she will feel proud to have him as president. All right. So already... I don't like this woman. Press on. I think I have a bigger heart than all of them. I think I'm much more competent than all of them. When you talk about George Bush, I mean, say what you want. The World Trade Center came down during his time. If you look Hold at on, Sandy that, Hook, you can't blame George Bush for that. Yes, he was president. Yes, okay? you can. Don't blame him or don't blame him. But he was president. The World Trade Center came down during his reign. Of course, of course, you can blame him. Who is this woman, Stephanie, who I didn't like already? Now she jumps in and says, well, you can't blame him for 9-11. Well, of course you can. He was warned about it on August 6th in the presidential daily brief. He did nothing about it. Everyone who was inside the administration who has a shred of honesty has said they tried to get him to pay attention uh, to al-Qaeda. He wasn't interested in al-Qaeda. Of course you can point that out. Of course you can uh, show that that happened on his watch. Well, of course, Jeb Bush... Jeb, W's brother, George's brother, is just uh, beside himself about this. He immediately took to Twitter to say how pathetic, how pathetic for Donald Trump to criticize the president for 9-11. We were attacked and my brother kept us safe. Uh, yeah, in that order. It might have been nice had it been the other way around. It kept us safe before we were attacked. But OK, this is the same refrain that Jeb Bush tried uh, during the first Republican debate uh, just a few weeks back. Remember this when he said, again, the same thing. His brother kept us safe. Really kept us safe? You know what? As it relates to my brother, there's one thing I know for sure. He kept us safe. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> Donald. You remember the, the rubble? You remember the firefighter with his arms around it? He sent a clear signal that the United States would be strong and fight Islamic terrorism, and he did keep us safe. Yeah, I remember that rubble, Jeb. I remember the rubble very well. Thanks for mentioning it again. Now, why was that rubble there? 
Why was he standing on rubble? What was something must have happened that there was rubble that he was standing on it? Now, even if you, by the way, uh, don't count 9-11. For some reason, 3,000 Americans were killed on 9-11, but, but for some reason, he kept us safe. Never mind those 3,000 Americans. Because he stood essentially on their grave and uh, said how we're going to get the bad guys after this. Well... When he went to get the bad guys after this, we, uh, that resulted in hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans, Iraqis, and Afghanis losing their lives in the subsequent U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, and we are still in both countries. Oh, and that also doesn't count the, uh, the, the anthrax attacks and more. And so this notion that he kept us safe, sorry, sorry to bring this up again, but every time Jeb Bush is going to come out and say his brother kept us safe, I guess I'm going to come out and remind you that he did nothing of the sort. And by the way, the reason that we're facing ISIS right now is because of the actions that George W. Bush took after 9-11. Kept us safe? My ass. This is Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. Yeah, free falling. We we uh, spoke a few days ago with uh, Michael Collins of the Drug Policy Alliance about this new federal reform uh, from the Bureau of uh, Bureau of Prisons that will result in some six thousand. Uh, uh, prisoners, federal prisoners being released from federal prison within the next few days because of sentencing reform, reform to these draconian, uh, 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 really drug laws from the from the war on drugs that have been in place for so many years. And now that federal sentencing has been reduced, the sentences for prisoners who are already sentenced are also being reduced by the Federal Board, uh, Bureau of Prisons, and that will result in some 6,000 prisoners being released within just the next few days, and as many as 46,000 prisoners 
within the next year, potentially, uh, as they sort of go through the backlog of all of these folks who have been uh, serving time for so long for, you know, things like uh, first-time nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, so we talked to uh, Michael Collins about that from the Drug Policy Alliance. He is very encouraged about uh, this change in policy, and he is also encouraged, he tells me, about uh, real movement for bipartisan reform to the criminal justice uh, system in the U.S. Congress. Real bipartisanship, actually, here. Folks from uh, both sides of the aisle looking to move forward a package of, uh, of, of reform, at least at the federal level. So as we were sort of putting that story together, we came across Anthony Papa, who also works for the uh, for the Drug Policy Alliance. He is the artist-in-residence and manager of media relations for Drug Policy Alliance. And he's also the author of the forthcoming book, which actually, I'm told, has been released today on Kindle, a book called An Open Letter to Men and Women Returning Home in the Age of Reform. Now, he is a longtime advocate against the war on drugs. He is a frequent public speaker and college lecturer on his art and criminal justice issues. And he's also the author of the book, the 2004 book, 15 to Life, How I Painted My Way to Freedom, a memoir about his own experience of being sentenced to state prison, 15 years to life imprisonment, for a first-time nonviolent drug offense under New York's draconian Rockefeller drug laws, he was uh, released uh, with received clemency about uh, 15 years ago, I think, at this point. But he wrote a very important article, I think, over at uh, Huffington Post last week, an open letter to the 6,000 prisoners coming home, uh, in which he warns that uh, freedom from prison was not what I expected. The freedom was swift and furious. I felt as though I had been slapped on my face with it. Um, so a very fascinating story. I wanted to talk to uh, Tony Papa about uh, his own personal story and about his thoughts for those who are about to be freed. Uh, Anthony Papa, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, r really appreciate uh, all of your work on this. And, uh, boy, and, and like I said, I, I want to talk, get, get your thoughts on uh, this new federal policy and so forth. But first, your own personal backstory is absolutely fascinating and, frankly, disturbing. Uh, so let's, uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that just so people have an idea who these people are who have been locked away for so long under our draconian uh, uh, drug laws over the last 30 years. How did you find yourself imprisoned uh, on a first-time nonviolent drug offense for 15 years to life? Well, in uh, 1985, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I got involved with drug activity. I was the first-time nonviolent drug offender uh, who was sentenced to 15 years to life. Um, I owned a radio installation business in 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 the Bronx. Mm -hmm. uh, things got kind of tough. Uh, it was Christmas time. I was broke, and I got desperate. When you get desperate, you do stupid things. So this individual that I bowled with in the bowling alleys of Westchester County, uh, he asked me why I kept coming late to the bowling league. So I told him that my car kept breaking down. So he says, oh, why don't you fix the car? I said, I have no money. He says, you want to make some fast money. So through a series of events, he um, arranged 
for me to meet somebody who was dealing drugs in the bowling alleys, and, and, and they asked me if I wanted to make a fast dollar. At first I said no because, you know, I knew better. But mm-hmm. then as time went by uh, and things got desperate, you know, I owed my rent, uh, Christmas time coming, I, I, I did... I, d- I made the move, and mm-hmm. what I did was I brought an envelope from the Bronx to Westchester County, uh, containing four and a half ounces of cocaine, for five hundred dollars. Um, pro- you you received my entire life for five hundred bucks. I walked into a police sting operation. Twenty cops came out of nowhere. I was placed under arrest. Did everything I could do wrong. And eventually I was sentenced to 15 years to life under the Rockefeller drug laws of New York State. And that's amazing to me. So $500 is what you made for this delivery. And you hadn't been involved in this before, right? You had no, did you have a, no. a prior police record at all? No record at all. No I record at all. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, basically I'd made uh, every every mistake I could make possible. And, uh, and I wound up with a, a 15 to life sentence. And how many years of those 15 years to life did you end up uh, serving eventually? I wound up doing 12 years of the 15 to life sentence. In 1997, uh, I was granted executive clemency based on my art. In 1988, after three years of incarceration, uh, I picked up a mirror one night, looked in the mirror, I saw an individual who's going to spend the most productive years of life in a cage, picked up a canvas and painted the self-portrait, and seven years later, wound up at the Whitney Museum of American Art mm. while I was in prison. I got a lot of publicity on my case, and two years after that, I was granted executive clemency. So I literally painted my way to freedom, which is the subtitle of my book, 15 Alive, How I Painted My Way to Freedom. Indeed. And um, I, and we should note, I, I think, that uh, it was actually New York Governor George Pataki, who is now a Republican candidate for president, who... Who signed your uh, your clemency? Right, he gave me clemency. Um, he was a very tough uh, governor, but in that aspect, he he gave people a break where they saw, he saw sentences were, uh, you know, out of control. Like my sentence, mm-hmm. fifteen to life for first time nonviolent drug offense, was kind of. Crazy. Yeah, kind of. Uh, what? Tell me about this. Uh, this was, of course, uh, what you refer to as the uh, draconian Rockefeller drug laws. What were right. What were those laws? The, it basically said any drug crime, boom, you go away to jail for 15 years? The, How did that work? Those laws were enacted in 1973. Governor Rockefeller at the time had presidential aspiration. He wanted to look tough on crime because he wanted to be president. So he enacted these laws. Uh, the laws in the beginning were not racist in intent, but they turned out to be very racist when 94% of those incarcerated are black and Latino. Uh, they were mandated, uh, mandatory minimum sentencing, which mm-hmm. takes the discretion of judges to look at uh, the totality of facts away. Uh, the, and this, this was the precursor of these laws that now exist on the books in the federal um, system. The mandatory minimum sentencing laws, which many of those that are going to come out of the 46,000, mm-hmm. they were sentenced under mandatory minimum sentencing. Mandatory minimum sentencing became the poison that literally broke the system. And uh, President Obama uh, is trying to do away with mass incarceration. Recently, he gave 46 clemencies. 
which was a, which was a good symbolic start. But now, like Michael Collins said, you know, uh, there's bipartisan legislation that's uh, had been, has been initiated to take away man- these mandatory minimum sentencing laws, and hopefully it helped to fix this broken system. The uh, in your case, the possession of four ounces or more of uh, of drugs such as heroin or or cocaine or the sale of two ounces of more of the same substances carried the same penalties as those imposed for second degree murder. And that was that was under state law. And 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 you're right. That's what became uh, of eventually the federal law. And so you were then imprisoned for about 12 years. You were out now for uh, 17 years at, the, yeah, at this point. Yeah, over 17 years. OK. And, and are, are we including in, in this uh the freedom that uh, some 6,000, maybe as many as 46,000 are about to see, uh, are we including enough help for the people who are coming out of jail? Someone like you who served for 12 years, as you wrote, uh, you were sort of slapped on the face with freedom when you came out. Has that changed since your release? And Or, or are these people walking, the people who are about to be released, walking into a, uh, you know, a similar buzzsaw as you see it? Well, you know, the new book that I've just written, uh, it's an open letter to the, those men and women who are returning mm-hmm. uh, to society in the age of reform. Society is not ready for the bottom line. And these people, uh, ex-prisoners, are not ready really to re-enter society. So there's, there's definitely problems here. These draconian laws that were initiated in the uh, 80s, and 90s mm-hmm. that put away most of these people uh, were, were mandatory minimum sentencing laws, crack cocaine, powder disparity laws, people put into prison. But when you go to prison 10, 15 years, and then all of a sudden now you, you, you get your freedom back, it's a really hard road to hold. Uh, it's, you have a lot of obstacles that you have to face. So this new book that I just wrote is is meant to help these people with their transition back into society. It's written by somebody like myself mm-hmm. who has managed to stay free for the last 18 years despite the stats that say 70% of those that come out mm-hmm. will return to prison within three years. I've beaten the stats. I've beaten the statistics. Why? I was prepared in my way of re-entering society. While in prison, I took advantage of the rehabilitation programs they had. I got three college degrees. I got a master's degree from New York Theological Seminary. Mm. And I discovered my political awareness, who I was, where I sat in society. Now I work for the Drug Policy Alliance. I I do media, uh, you know, trying to get this word out, uh, the issue. I have hundreds of letters from prisoners. I started a project a couple of years ago where I asked prisoners to send me their stories, and we put these stories out trying to show how draconian these laws. But with the states struggling because of financial problems, they look to reduce the prison populations, which is a good thing, but then these men and women coming home into a society that 
it's not ready for them yeah. can be a problem. So hopefully, you know, I'll add a little knowledge to these people when they come home. They can pick up my book. Uh, they could see what I went through as a former prisoner of the war on drugs and how I made it as a free person and continuously stood has been free for the last 18 years. Hopefully I can help some of these people. I'm speaking with Anthony Papa of the Drug Policy Alliance. Anthony is a, a former 12-year uh, state prisoner in, uh, in New York, was granted clemency about 17 years ago. Uh, what was, uh, Anthony, what was the greatest challenge that you faced uh, upon being released? What was the greatest obstacle that, that you faced and that I, I suspect uh, other uh, the prisoners can expect as well now? Well, the greatest thing for me was the sudden freedom. That I, all of a sudden I was faced with the reality of freedom. It's not what I expected. Um I got a job quickly, which was a good thing. I had money, put money in my pocket. That's one thing that these individuals that eventually returned to society, they needed to have jobs. Mm-hmm. So the community uh, of, uh, that is out there can help these people by giving them a second chance. Like Obama, President Obama just did second chances. He talked about it. Given that's the first step in welcoming uh, former prisoners to the community, mm-hmm. and hopefully uh, people with the ability can help people who come out of prison by giving them jobs and accepting them as productive citizens in, in their communities. There's an effort to, uh, it's called the ban the box effort. Do you think that will make a difference? That, I guess, is the box that's on, a, on a, an employment form. It doesn't keep anyone from an employer from looking into to doing a, a you know, criminal background check for a potential employee, but it says, uh, you know, before they have their first interview, you, you know, you're not sending the message that, yes, I was a, a, a felon it, by, you know, checking that box. They want to make it illegal to get rid of that box. Well, what are your thoughts on that, Anthony? Well, I think I think it's a good thing because uh, I know when I went for my job, you know, I struggled when I saw that box mm-hmm. and actually told the, um, the job that I was a former prisoner mm-hmm. and I served a 15-to-life sentence. They accepted me. Uh, uh, but I know from many uh, uh, people that I've I've seen on parole mm-hmm. and heard the the stories. You know, uh, men and women. Uh, uh, you know, when they face the reality of 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 uh, going for a job, and as soon as they sign that that box, they automatically, almost automatically. Do not apply for. Don't don't get the job. They do not get the job. They throw the application away. They don't even bother with the interview when they see that uh, that check uh, that box checked. That box checked. So I think it's a good thing to do away with that um, Mm -hmm. with that box. For sure. Are are you? um, 
Well, actually, let, let me ask you this. Uh, we've got just a, a minute or two left here, uh, uh, Tony. But do you? This is something we talk a lot about on this program about democracy and about voting. And uh, right now, you know, the fight uh, to ensure that former felons in many states are allowed to vote. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. In the state of New York, um, do you get to vote uh, as a former felon at this point? Oh yeah. Well, came out, I, mm-hmm. I was startled to find out I could not vote because I was on parole. Mm-hmm. So I had to wait five years until I was off parole to cast my first vote. Um, you know, people are, some states you're allowed to vote while you're in prison, some mm-hmm. states not, you're not allowed to vote. And then for me, in New York State, if you're on parole, you, you can't vote until you get off parole. So for me, it took five years to allow me to cast my first vote. There are some states, uh, Tony, where even when you're uh, off parole, you don't yeah, get to vote. Allow you, right. Yeah, which I find to be amazing. Uh, but I'll I will go even further, and I'd love your thoughts on this. It seems to me uh, that people in jail, whether you're you know, never mind uh, parole and later on seems to me that there's a lot of prisoners, a lot of uh, you know felons like yourself uh, who would have had a right uh, to vote while in jail for all of those years because it seems to me that you were as directly affected by laws that are enacted by you know election officials as anyone else. I mean, shouldn't you as a prisoner at least have a say? Uh, in the very laws that you've been sentenced under, I, I agree with you 100. percent Because you, you know, even though you're in prison, you, the community you you lived in, yeah, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 it's, it's constantly changing, and eventually you're going to go back to that community. Most people, when they get out, they go back to mm-hmm. the communities they 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 came from. So for me, while I was prison, I felt very uh, bad that I couldn't contribute to my community while I saw it was deteriorating from prison. So I think it's very important for people to exercise their right to vote. And, uh, uh, you know, I vote every year. I make sure I cast that vote. When the first time I cast my vote, I felt like part, I was part of uh, my community again. I felt whole as a human being. You felt whole, yeah. Were you a voter? Did you vote before you uh, went to uh, prison? Actually... You know, the greatest thing for me being in prison was my discovery of my political awareness. Mm-hmm. Before I went to prison, I didn't even uh, bother to vote. I was just a regular Joe. But then, you know, the experience itself, uh, if you read my book, my first book, 15 to Life, you see the trials and tribulations I went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when I came out discovering I couldn't vote. It was very painful for me. So it took five years, but uh, when the time came, I cast that vote. I felt like I was whole again. It was a wonderful feeling. Uh, Anthony, are you? Uh, last question here. Are are you hopeful about uh, the direction this country now seems to be going on, as dysfunctional as it is on so many levels in Congress and everything else? Uh, you know, Michael Collins seemed to suggest he had real confidence that there was bipartisan reform in this completely broken Congress. One thing they could agree on seems to be criminal justice reform. We'll see if that moves forward. But uh, are are you hopeful on these points? Are you hopeful about the direction the country is now moving in? Oh, sure. Um, 
I mean, for me, the way um, President Obama is trying to leave his legacy, uh, cleaning up the you know the broken system that exists, the criminal justice system, uh, ending mass incarceration, I'm very hopeful that it will continue. And uh, through this bipartisan legislation, that the baton will be passed out to the next president, and hopefully they will continue to try to fix this broken system. Well, um, I'm glad to hear you're hopeful. I think I am, too, which is, is somewhat ironic given the uh, the mess the country seems to be in on one level. But if you look a little bit uh, deeper, you see that there is movement going on. There is encouraging progressive movement going on, uh, and in particular on criminal justice reform. Anthony Papa of the Drug Policy Alliance, you can find them uh, at drugpolicy.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at drugpolicy.org. Uh, and you should check out Anthony Papa's uh, books, two of them now, his uh, 2004 book, 15 to Life, How I Painted My Way to Freedom, and his brand new book uh, just out on Kindle today, as we learned, uh, An Open Letter to Men and Women Returning Home in the Age of Reform. Anthony, uh, really good to talk to you, uh, to learn about your story, and I hope we'll talk more again in the future. Uh, the listeners can go to my website, 15tolife.com, find uh, all about me, what I'm doing, my, see my art. Uh, you can go to drugpolicy.org and see uh, as an organization what we're doing in the United States. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Thank you, Anthony. Greatly appreciated. Good luck to you. Take care. Bye. You know, I wanted to have Anthony on uh, the show after we, we spoke to him a few days ago and, and heard his story because we hear so many uh, you know, statistics and numbers, the number of people in jail, how we have in this country, 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. Um, but, you know, too often these are just numbers. And uh, Desi Doyen, we see these people or we hear about these people as sort of, you know, statistics and, oh, they're drug criminals and we got a drug problem and the war on drugs and we don't really talk to them or hear from them as human beings and hear and understand the cost of these policies that are passed, uh, you know, in the case of these uh, draconian drug laws, the Rockefeller drug laws, then, you know, they went federal. A guy gets sent away 15 years to life for a nonviolent drug offense. One arrest. One arrest. I, it, I know it's 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 uh, it's very sad, and it's not just you know the human cost to him, but it's the human cost to his family. It's the human cost to to you know all of the families that are devastated it, by these draconian laws that have taken decades to begin to dismantle. And just think of the cost over these last decades to all of these individuals and their families and their communities. It's the cost to society. It's the cost to society. You know, you've got someone, I mean, like him, Anthony Papa, he was lucky. He was lucky. He, you know, he found uh, something that he could do and do well while he was in prison and he was able to come out and find a job. That's not the case for most people. No, I, I would suspect. I mean, this, the, and, he gave that statistic yeah. of seventy percent recidivism rate. Seventy percent of released prisoners eventually find themselves back into the system because they can't get jobs. 
And if you can't get a job, what are you going to do to feed yourself and feed your children if you have any? So it's it's it sets them up to be to, for permanent failure, and and that again continues to perpetuate the problem. You know, and then you have in California, you know, they've just repealed this, but the street the three strikes law, mm-hmm. where if you get if you have three bad checks that you wrote and you go to prison for that, you go to prison for life, life, life for I writing know. a bad check for 20 bucks. You know, so it's 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 completely out of proportion to the crime. You know itself. what? In many ways, uh, if, if you're going to throw someone in jail for 12 years at that point, you might as well keep them for life. I mean, because I don't know how you bounce back after 12 years in prison. Uh, you know, and how you can come out and uh, just adjust to society. And, well, we're about to find out because I think we've gotten to the point now where things are changing. We're going to be releasing a lot of these people. I don't know what problems it's going to cause for them, for us. Um, Especially, well, especially if there aren't any programs or there isn't enough uh, programs Mm -hmm. to help them re-enter into public life. I mean, Tony Papa, that's one of of the things that he talks about is the first time he was on the subway. And in, in his book, he talks about this, that he got bumped by somebody and... In prison, that would be you're about to get in a fight. But yeah. he realized, oh, I'm on a subway. Everybody's getting bumped. I need to relax. It's okay. And it's that kind of adjustment, that the kind of help to adjust that they're not getting. And I think that that also sets them up to fail. Uh, yeah. So, so we're not prepared lot- for this, but hopefully this will help. His book will help people. Uh, indeed. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, you know what? At least I'm, I'm going to uh, tell myself again that we are at least moving in the right direction, that the, uh, you know, the, the arc of uh, justice is long, but at least it's maybe finally bending in the right direction, uh, although I suspect there's going to be a lot of bumps along the way. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Like a scene from all those movies But you're real enough to me But there's a heart A heart that lives in New York Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, my thanks again to Anthony Papa, who's... Uh, who, who makes me yearn for my days in New York. I don't know if you miss them, Desi Doyen. I do, but, I do. Uh, yeah, and he like a, a scene from all those movies, just hearing his voice. And he's been on, by the way, I think he was um, HBO's The Wire, I think. He, he appeared on, he's uh, appeared on a couple of things. Yeah, and, and yeah. sorry, he's just done so well. It's it's just really heartening to see someone who has been able to to bring out their artistic capabilities. Um, you know, even though he's gone through so much, it, it's nice to see that he's done so well. And then. after having paid a, such a huge price for so yes. little. Now, uh, we'll see if this guy, Wayne Simmons, will pay anywhere near the type of price. Uh, and considering, frankly, the, the harm that he has done to our country, this Wayne Simmons guy who served as a uh, an expert since going back to, I think, since uh, 2000 on Fox News. This is the guy who was Fox News's go to guy on Benghazi His the Benghazi expert who could tell us what the CIA, what was going on inside the CIA, what the CIA was really doing out there in Benghazi. They always cited this guy, Wayne Simmons. 
uh, not just on Benghazi, but all manner of things on ISIS, on how terrible the quote unquote boy king Obama is uh, and how he inspires terrorism. This is what this Wayne Simmons guy would say. He had warned back in 2005 that if if Democrats came to power, we would see uh, 911s unabated. He said, if the Democrats come into power in the United States and reemploy their vision of defense for this country, we will have 911s unabated. He said, that's not maybe. We know what took place in the past, and I still don't understand exactly what it is that the Americans expect President Bush to do that's any different from what he's already done. That was in uh, 2005. This guy, Wayne Simmons, Wayne Simmons, who uh, served for 30 years, we were told, as a CIA operative, a former CIA operative. He attacked Nancy Pelosi. Uh, ironically enough, he called her a pathological liar back in 2009. Here's a clip of that. Wayne Simmons on Fox News, their 30-year CIA expert on on Fox News in 2009, talking about Nancy Pelosi. Wayne Simmons is a former CIA operative. So uh, what is the impact of Nancy Pelosi's statement that the CIA lied to her and to members of Congress? Well, you know, Martha, the best thing about be, uh, not being a politician or a diplomat makes it very easy for me to tell you, first and foremost, that Nancy Pelosi, the woman's third in line to be president of the United States, the Speaker of the House, is a pathological liar. And her attacks on the CIA, the release of the CIA memos, has so sent a chill through the CIA to guys like me who were not only interrogated like in our careers, oh. but ran interrogations and interviews that I can assure you we are not going to go the extra mile ever in this climate. Yes, that's right. He was interrogated. He ran interrogations. This was all about, I think, the uh, the torture memos that were released uh, ultimately back in uh, 2009, the George W. Bush era torture memos. So Wayne Simmons, 30 year CIA, former CIA operative, calling Nancy Pelosi a pathological liar. Well, as it turns out, Wayne Simmons has now been arrested after a federal grand jury indicted him on charges of major fraud against the United States, wire fraud and making false statements to the government, including allegedly falsely claiming that he worked for the CIA. Apparently, this guy never did. He never worked for the CIA at all. Uh, he's been a liar. He's been uh, for 15 years on Fox News on one issue after another, not just going on and making these claims, but then you hear those claims echoed. You hear those claims echoed uh, from other people. And they say a CIA tells us a CIA operative, uh, you know, tells us now that there are training camps. There are ISIS training camps in the U.S. Yes, that came. If you've heard that claim, that came from the liar Wayne Simmons. A global war against Islamic Jihad. And anyone who does not want to face up to that is only asking for trouble. It is incomprehensible that anywhere in the United States these types of things would be allowed. And yet, my friend Ryan Morrow, as you probably know, reported that uh, through the Clarion Project that we've got at least 19 paramilitary Muslim training facilities in the United States. Are you kidding me? Yes, apparently he was. No, we don't have 19 paramilitary training camps in the U.S. 
Wayne Simmons is a liar. Wayne Simmons has now been arrested for being a liar. When will they arrest the rest of Fox News for their round-the-clock lies for God knows how many years? Man alive. Well, that's one down. And will he pay any price? What price will Wayne Simmons pay? Will he pay as much as Anthony Papa had to pay? For $500 for delivering a drug for somebody at some point and was sent to jail for 12 years? How many years will Wayne uh, uh, Simmons get in prison? We'll find out, if any. Betty strikes a plea deal and never serves a day. We'll find out. Anyway, just one of the many stories we can look forward to in the days ahead right here on your Bradcast. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. And, of course, to Anthony Papa of the Drug Policy Alliance. Check out their work at drugpolicy.org. And check out Anthony's book at 152life.com. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it and it and all other programs at bradblog.com anytime. We've got them all there for you for free. Or you can go over and subscribe for free over at iTunes. And, hey, give us a good review while you're there. It makes it easier for other people to find us as well. Drop us email. We are bradcast at bradblog.com. And follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.